0: Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, coming to us from Boulder, Colorado, is Mark Azule. He's a psychotherapist with a private practice, and he's also the past president of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. He helps clients that have a harmful relationship with their inherent aggression or who are stuck in the pain of their repetition compulsions. Uh, There's a lot more to his uh, methods and what he's doing, but I'm going to let him talk about them instead of me reading a blurb. So without further delay, Mark, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Happy to be on the show. Awesome. Yeah. Likewise. Um, we're excited to have you. And as I mentioned previously, we do have three standard quick questions we always ask at the beginning of the interview, which is, um, how old are you? Where did you grow up and what generation, if any, do you think you belong to?
1: Okay. I am 32 years old. I grew up in a small rural town in Maryland called Dayton and I identify as a millennial.
0: Awesome. Very simple. Uh, cool. Actually, I'm a little curious about the small town Maryland thing. Uh, when you say small town, did, did you really like grow up with like everyone knew everyone, that kind of thing? Or were you like outside DC and sort of in a suburb of a big, huge city?
1: Oh, no, it was, it was a rural town. I mean, growing up, my town didn't have a school. So I, I had to take a 45 minute bus ride to get to the closest school. We had to drive about a half an hour to the grocery store. We uh, didn't have a stoplight. We just had a four way stop sign. And our town consisted of a bar, a gas station and a post office box. We didn't even have our own post office. We were like a subsidy of the other town over. So it was pretty small and pretty rural. Um, There there were neighborhoods, but there wasn't too much community. Um, It was kind of more just kind of separate houses, a lot of farms and homesteads and things like that. You know, a lot of space between people.
0: That's incredible. I'm I'm totally floored Uh, because I went to college in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I drove through Maryland a lot. So now I'm picturing the part you're in. I have to ask you because you're a psych, you have psychiatry degrees and all that. Uh, How much do you think that like affected you both positively and negatively? Like what, what's that? Cause that's not a common experience anymore.
1: Right. Right. And, and it's not available now that, that same town Dayton is now been paved over with kind of McMansions and a lot of the farmers, you know, sold their land to developers, which is not their fault. It's understandable. It's hard bargain to say no to, but now it's becoming a suburb. Um, So for me, I mean, I think positive and negative, there's a, there's a lot there. I think from the positive side, it gave me a real appreciation of nature. Uh, my family, we own a restaurant, and we have a big garden in the backyard. So, I spent a lot of my time growing up, you know, harvesting vegetables, learning how to cook. We were kind of doing farm to table before that was a thing, you know, just kind of from our backyard to the restaurant kind of thing. And that was that gave me real appreciation for nature and a real appreciation for quietness and a slower pace of life. Whereas The negative is when I was growing up, I was overweight. I was, you know, a Jewish kid. I was nerdy. So I didn't have a lot of friends that were interested in the same things that I were. So I turned a lot to the Internet to learn about culture and to connect with people, which, I mean, good that it was out there. But I did have a fairly lonely childhood because most people were, you know, athletes or military people or you know, farmers, which was a little bit of a different population than what I was interested as I was growing up.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. Um, I was also an overweight Jewish kid, although I was in a normal small town. But that's a that's a pretty interesting commonality. And actually, I am curious about uh, so were your parents there because they just wanted respite and to be away from the world or?
1: Yeah, so they're both dentists. Uh, They ended up working about 45 minutes away in a suburb of D.C., um, Laurel, Laurel, Maryland. But they just wanted they wanted some peace. I think at the time, you know the housing was a lot cheaper out there. Uh, they wanted a little bit more room and they wanted a larger home, so I think that was a big influence. And the school system was pretty good um in the in the town over, you know not in the town yeah, yeah. Up, but um in the neighboring in neighboring town. So I think that that was some of the decisions around moving.
0: That's awesome. So what landed you in Boulder, Colorado?
1: Yeah, so I went out here for graduate school. I went to Naropa University, which is a Buddhist university. It's one of the, I think there's only two or maybe three now in the country. And there's a, a longer story of what was me with that, but essentially I, I'm sober. I'm in recovery from drugs and mindfulness and Buddhism was a huge part of that. So kind of going to this Buddhist university was the next step of me trying to get clean and also trying to really deepen my interest in that area. So Boulder has, has one of those.
0: That's awesome. And I love the way you talk. You're I, uh, I like honest people, especially in today's uh, day and age. So you're the perfect guest for the show. Um, and so I don't feel awkward asking the following question, which my intuition has told me to ask you. Uh, what drugs were you having issues with? I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, and you can ask anything for the record. So the most extreme drug is I did do heroin for about a year and a half. I smoked it, never shot it up. But I did overdose, which be something to talk about, because I did have a near-death experience there.
0: Oh, we're definitely going to talk about that.
1: But but the main thing is uh, marijuana was probably the most common one. I mean, I smoked weed from, I don't know, like teenage years all the way through mid-20s daily, a lot every day. And um, also dabbled a lot with psychedelics, too, which I don't know if that's as addicting. I, now I don't use them at all, but it was – those are a little bit different. So I'm sure you've heard people talk about psychedelics on your podcast before but I'd say the most
0: dangerous heroin, you
1: know, and then marijuana most consistently.
0: Yeah. That was kind of why I asked. Cause uh, I'm a proponent of psychonaut like exploration with psychedelics. I've done my fair share and uh, I also smoke marijuana, but I'm not what I would classify myself as an addict of any of them, but I do kind of always wonder. And then when I meet someone who's intellectual professional and like has a solid career and then is either recovering or dealing with, or, you know, uh, had had use like like I do, I'm just always curious about that because I think our society completely downplays, if not ignores, all these kinds of people, and I think it's it's both tragic and it's also causing some steep consequences as far as like legislation, punishment, the guilt and all that. So before we get into your near death, which I'm dying to hear about, um, would you care to comment on any of that? Like, do you have a new approach for how you think we should talk about drugs in America? Should we be calling marijuana, acid, and heroin drugs, or should we be calling them marijuana, acid, and heroin? Things like that.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I, I think we need an individualized approach for every substance. You know, I think they are very, very different in the way that they're used. And I think more education, I'm always on the fan of, you know, deregulation, right? I don't like government regulating commerce in many ways, but pro-education of allowing people to make their own educated decisions about these different things and not classifying them all as the same. You know, I can say for me, right, smoking weed made me just really demotivated. I, I used it as a way to avoid life responsibilities and to kind of keep myself small. That's not the case for most people or all people, right? Some people were able to use it medicinally or use it to reduce anxiety or help with cluster headaches and migraines. Like there are uses for it. Um, but I think it can also be very insidious, where for me, it was a daily habit, and I wasn't able to turn it off. So it became addiction on my end. So, you know, psychedelics is another thing where I would not be the psychotherapist I was today or just have the value to be interested in spirituality or Buddhism if I didn't experiment with those. That they, they really did help broaden my experience and open my mind and give me a, a different sense of the world and really challenge my assumptions. But there's this ongoing thing i'd be curious i'd be curious your thoughts on this this is ongoing conversation now i'm reading the book stealing fire i'm not sure if you've heard of it it came out recently around the static experience where they talk about you know using things like psychedelics technology or group experience to short circuit spiritual process and bring out being you know this, these ideas of ecstasy or community or um, bonding merging transcendental states he says that you know if you can short circuit it with technology that's more effective. It's really challenged the way that I thought because through Buddhism, you get to some of the same states, but it's really long and really boring. and takes a lot of discipline. And I've come to value that discipline and that boring path. I don't know about short-circuiting to the end. So it's a, all that to say, it's a current kind of in-process thought that I'm having of what is the value of a long and arduous path versus a glimpse of the other side, knowing that I'm biased because I did have a glimpse of the other side through my, you know, experiments with, Uh, LSD and mushrooms and things like that?
0: Yeah, uh, I'll answer quickly. And then I do want to hear about your near-death experience. Um, And so I'll just say that I am a lifelong uh, transcendental meditator. My parents taught me when I was like 12 or some ridiculously young age. And uh, so the hard work to get those experiences to me is easily short-circuited by like a quick toke of a pipe with some weed in it. But what I've noticed over time is that the actual longer term effects of regular meditation and those practices is what I'm more interested in now and what I notice more. So like sometimes I'll come home from like a stressful day and as much as I want to like just get a little high or something, I'll choose to meditate instead now. Whereas 15 years ago, no way, that wasn't even on the table. So I do think that there's a little bit of wisdom to both, but I would definitely argue that if you're looking for a sustained sense of peace you are not going to find that through the quick, you know, experiences you do. So like maybe tripping on acid with all your friends and having this peak experience is going to give you a new sense of perspective and a lot of joy, but that joy is going to recede if you don't keep that perspective. So that's, that's as much as I'm willing to say on it, not for fear of being judged, but just that's my experiences. Um, but I, I really try to, concentrate on my guests on this podcast because I'm, I'm so interested and you have, I can already tell I'm going to have uh, 35 million follow-up questions. So before we get into what do you think happens when you die? Because that's what you think. Let's just hear what your experience was when you had a near-death experience. What actually happened to you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the experience there is that I overdosed my uh, sophomore year of college. It was, it's hard to say with drugs, you know, if it was suicide or an accident. I know I was in a bad place i wanted to not feel anything i wanted to just turn the lights off for a while and for me opiates did that it kind of felt like a like a warm hug in a way There was a very there's a comfort to the numbness that now I, I don't want to go back into but there was something where i was just like shut everything down turn off my mind and i i took way too much and you know i don't remember too much of it i'm trying to be as accurate as possible because i was you know sedated you know, but I, I do remember floating, uh, feeling a floating out of my body. I do remember kind of hearing um, sounds as if almost I was in like a fishbowl or something. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, um, she was the RA. So she actually had access to Narcan, which, she, which was incredible because she truly saved my life. Wow. Yeah. So she was there and she was able to Narcan me. Um, and, you know, there's like a, there's a jump in time in my experience. And I just woke up in the hospital because, you know, they go there and they kind of flush your system out and and, and do all that. And I got to say, I don't know, I didn't have like the white tunnel moment or any of that stuff, but it did really change my life afterwards where I had some of the, I guess maybe stereotypical, but I think it was real for me of appreciating life, being interested in life, being in a place where I want to choose life. There wasn't a sense of like, oh my God, I, I didn't make it or, or this was the right thing to do. It was I, I was scared. I mean, I was scared shitless for the most part, but it did inspire me to, I think, take things a lot less seriously and inspired me to look deep within myself. I started therapy um, as, as a client directly after that, uh, mainly because of fear, but also because of like an interest in trying to understand myself deeper and trying to understand how I got to this point. So it's crazy for, for an experience that is, you know, chemically numbing it was, it woke me up in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And actually it's a total uh, weird coincidence, but I was forwarded an article this morning on uh, neuroscience studies on near-death experiences. And they've actually now expanded like the definition and, and the, uh, the, the rules for how to diagnose one. And like universities like Harvard, Baylor, UC Riverside, like, so major, major universities that are well-respected, um, have adopted this like board of convention of rules. And one of the things they talk about is that the reason they're not consistent with hallucinations is that they're too similar and they have like very specific things. And one of them is a separation from the body, a vast sense of consciousness. Um, And then what you mentioned that you didn't have was like a travel to a destination and then a review of your life and criticism of it and analysis. But then the part That you did also get is parts D and E, which is a feeling of being like your home and wanting to change your life and having like a huge, profound shift in your efforts in life, so to speak. So, you know, joining therapy. And so actually, I think it's a good segue into the only other question we plan for this podcast, which is, uh, and I'm curious you can answer it either before that experience or after the experience or just now, whatever, however you choose to. But what do you think actually will happen to you when you actually die? And I'm not asking what happens to a person. Like, how do you envision your experience?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to answer that. I want to share another quick story about something that informed my answer. But I, I, I do have an answer for you. So I worked in hospice for a couple of years uh, post-graduation. It was one of my first jobs in the like, in the agency, right? I'm um, In the field, rather. And at the same time, I was really deep into Buddhism. I was studying the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And they have this idea where, you know, in the Buddhist thought, I mean, you probably know this, but your listeners might not, that in that final moment of death, all of your karma, and what they mean by karma is they mean all the baggage, your emotional baggage, just gets dumped into your brain. And if it's not dealt with, it all has to get dealt with in that final moment. And this story gives me goosebumps every time I think of it, because I saw that happen. I saw that happen with people that were dying. And at the time I was doing 11th hour work, which essentially is you're there when when they're dying, when they're actively, the moment is happening. And I was there as a companion, mainly for family members because the patient is not very responsive at the time, but I'm there with the family members, you know, holding, you know, the kid's hands or something like that. And what I saw is crazy. You know, I, because we were working in in rural hospice, we would go into people's homes. Um, Some of them could not afford um uh morphine right or any kind of painkiller so I saw a more clear depiction of death which was in that final moment the, the stuff came out of them there would be they would scream you know they'd be so angry there's anger that was unresolved would just blast out you know they would start crying about regrets or about guilt some would fall into shame some would be in joy and bliss and it was a truly like, if I don't have any religious experiences, those are those experiences of seeing that really graceful divine death. And then the craziest part is that it would just stop. Like at some point, it would just stop because they would die, and it would stop very abruptly. And that freaked me up because <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it's about supernatural. I'm still trying to, you know, I'm curious. I'm trying, I'm trying to figure that out. But if there's anything as a ghost, it's that. It's the leftover energy that gets stuck in the room because it never got completed for so many people right they'd be ranting ranting and screaming and then they would just stop and they would die and you would feel in the room of like there's something unresolved there so all that to say that's what i think is happens when i'm when i'm gonna die is that i do hope if possible to do it without morphine i'm not sure how i feel in the moment but i'd like to do it as open-eyed as possible I would like to be able to use my meditation practice as a way to try and stay conscious during that moment and try to work you know throughout my life through meditation, through therapy, through conversations like this, quite frankly. I mean anything where I can be open, authentic, honest, resolve my past karma, resolve all these open threads so that when I do die, that doesn't get dumped into my brain and I'm able to be there peacefully. Now, from a spiritual perspective, does that mean I, get enlightened i don't know does it mean i get reincarnated i don't know like i don't really know what the next step is but i do know or seem to know and i've experienced this like dumping unfinished business process
0: wow that was a great answer it, it sort of reminded me of the opposite of what aldous huxley chose to do which was to take lsd on his deathbed which is like final quote i think was this is the most serene most beautiful death or something it's crazy like but uh i think his take was actually the same as yours i think it's just coming from the opposite end uh and that's actually something I think people should really consider. I also used to volunteer in hospice um, and I wasn't doing a lot of 11th hour, but like get your affairs in order, apologize to people, say, I love you. I forgive you. Like things like that. Cause I definitely noticed that was the only thing I could see even in before what you describe as the 11th hour, just the like contemplative end of life, the, those nagging feelings of like, Oh shoot. I didn't need to hold that grudge or whatever. Um And, and so, uh, I'm curious, because um, you said, like, karma, you used that, that word that is uh, not a trigger word. It doesn't tr- really trigger, like, a negative reaction from most people, but it's certainly a buzzword at this point in our culture. Um, how do you define karma the way you used it?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I kind of fall back on the Buddhist formal. Uh, let me, let me take, a, take a step back. I think the Western definition of karma is this idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And it's a kind of what goes around, comes around type of thing, which is not karma from what the Buddhists say. It's, that's actually a very kind of judo-Christian thing of like, if you're a sinner, you get punished. You know, it's kind of taking a, an Eastern idea and then flushing it through the Western uh, perspective. If you look at the Buddhist, right, if you look at the Buddhist perspective, it really, the most kind of closest thing that we can get to is cause and effect. Right? It literally means like, if you do stuff, they have consequences. And these consequences then build up in your psyche. And they are things that you have to work on to resolve if you wanna have a a clear consciousness or a clear ego. Because again, a lot of Buddhism, especially early Buddhism is about preparing for death. That's literally the whole goal of it is to be ready for that moment when you die. And by releasing your karma, you're gonna be in a more clear place to travel the the doors of the dead or, or is kind of what they talk about. So the idea that I see it as, and well, yeah, the idea I see that. Is it, it is that unfinished business, it, but it's also living a life in line with your values. You know, this idea of not having any regrets or of honor is a word that I use a lot in my practice and in my life of trying to live honorably, trying to live, live ethically, trying to treat people how I want to be treated. I mean, all these things that don't create that kind of mental sickness. And as being somebody who was an addict, I used to live with a lot of that, a lot of shame guilt regrets fear anxiety like it would really pollute my mind that's why Buddhism really appealed to me because I, I felt that in a, in real time and as I've done a lot of work I've been sober for about a decade and I've done a lot of this work and cleared out my karma I literally see clear I have more awareness and I'm not perfect there's still stuff obviously that, that I'm working on but I feel like I can connect more with the moment. I connect more with individuals, with my girlfriend. I can connect more with nature. I'm just clearer because I don't have these shaming anxiety thoughts in the same way that I, that I lived with for a lot of my life. And I believe if I can kind of keep doing that, then I'll be prepared for death
0: in a way. That's awesome. Um, so you're kind of like building towards a question I was planning on asking later in the interview, but uh, I, the word addiction also kind of coincidentally is a buzzword at this point. Uh, You know, like, I'm addicted to food. That's a weird statement because food is something you're required to eat versus I'm addicted to heroin. Okay, I can see the use there. Uh, Some people, we call them highly functioning addicts. Um, And so I'm curious what, A, your subscription, what your belief is for the word addiction. And then B, do you think all addictions are inherently unhealthy? Do you think some are okay and passable? Like, how do you... Uh, talk about this being someone who's 10 years uh, completely addict, addiction free.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, what I like to use is what's actually in my bio that you read earlier, which the idea of a repetition compulsion, which is the psychoanalytic word for addiction. So, it essentially means something that you repeat that feels compulsive, right? Something that feels out of control, something that feels automatic. Um, to go a little, little level deeper from psychoanalysis, it's something that is controlled by an unconscious drive rather than a conscious drive. So the most common experience actually was for me, um, that's part relatable to most listeners is cigarettes. So I was also a nicotine addict. And towards the end, when I was trying to quit, there would be times where I would be almost like a zombie. I'd be driven to the gas station. I would go buy the cigarettes, unwrap it, get buy a new lighter If I needed to take out the little foil smoke, like there's so many steps where I could have stopped, but I couldn't stop. And there was a voice in my head. That's like, no, 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 don't do it. This is not good for you. Right. Like, there's this like resistance, but it, it's just happening. It, it's compulsive. And I'm not in control of my life in that moment. So I think are very relatable. For me, that was definitely true um, with other drugs. You know, I think for some people, you mentioned food, it can be that where they find themselves eating or snacking when like, they really don't want to, but there's an unconscious thing that is taking control. And that can extend out not just around substances, but can you stand out around relationship behavior? Some people have a, we call it an anger addiction or an anger compulsion where they just like blow up and they're out of control. You know, some people are very sensitive and will end up crying or grieving. Some people end up, you know, dating the same toxic people over and over again. So it can really be anything, but it's anything where your unconscious takes the wheel and you get hijacked by past trauma, by unconscious beliefs, um, I, you know, extend the Buddhist thing by karma, you know, um, by these kind of unfinished businesses, this all comes up. And that's what I would call an addictive or, or a compulsive behavior.
0: That, that was a fantastic answer. Um, I'm sure you hear this a lot, but I'm shocked that you're only 32 years old. Um, you have a lot of wisdom and, and education. And those are one is easier said than done. And the other, I think, is often lied about and not done. So I'm <laughs> impressed. Um, Thank you. Do you feel in America, in a culture where we have happy hour and we're supposed to like look forward to these retreats into like substances, do you feel ever like alienated or like you're not fitting in? Or do you just feel kind of what you said earlier? Like, no, nah, I'm just peaceful. I feel great.
1: I, I certainly used to. I mean, call it early and, and mid uh, sobriety. I, that was a real struggle for me. I'm not going to lie. Especially around dating, it was very hard for me to meet women and to go on dates in places that were alcohol and substance focused and for a lot of young people you know sex quite frankly is gated by substances people often you know drink to loosen up right or smoke to loosen up or something so i was uh i was not getting very late in my <laughs> early to mid 20s um because those environments were not very comfortable for me there in some ways they were somewhat dangerous for me um the woman i've been dating now is now sober and it's, it's fantastic but definitely i definitely felt on the outside until You know, I really do the work of a lot of therapy um, and conversations and friends and mentors decided to take responsibility for my life. And now I'm very social, but I find that I plan a lot of things. I I host a lot of dinners. I'm into board games. I'm still a nerd. I play Dungeons and Dragons, you know, so I, I host people and bring them into my world, which they end up enjoying. And they can, of course, bring alcohol and stuff. I don't really mind that at this point. I'm not triggered. But instead of going out into the culture I try to bring people into my world and give people different experiences. Also, living in Colorado has been very helpful because the outdoor community is also fairly sober because if you're going to do extreme outdoor sports like I do, you don't want to be messed up or hungover to do them. So there's a little nice overlap there. And I found a lot of solace in hiking and backpacking.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I live in Arizona and I think we're two uh, peas in a pod as far as states that are like, uh, I think we're... Two of five states that don't have an obesity epidemic, (laughs) it's just at the obesity level right below that. What do you think are the next steps for the average American who recognizes that they don't have an alcohol problem, they can have a glass of wine, they can blah, 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 but they're also not playing board games with friends and and doing wholesome outdoor activities a lot because of a hangover or because they went out and drank?
1: Yeah, I, I think the next step is to find activities that tune you in, whatever that may be. You know, for me, it's engaging in board games. It's, it's art. I, I like painting. It's outdoors. It's music. I mean, I have, I've, had, I've had to develop a lot of these. But what I do see in a lot of American culture, if I me get a little judgmental, is a, like a hollowness to life where people can feel like they are on repeat. They're just on a loop, right? They're working to pay for a car, to commute to work, to get a better job so they can buy a better house so they can work more. That's cl- You know, it's like it's just this constant treadmill. And they buffered it with, you know, happy hours and party and, and all of that. But those experiences, at least for me, they, they numbed me out. And they I got out of touch with reality to the point of sometimes blacking out or losing time, which is not great because our time is limited here. It's not great to lose any of that as possible. But I would, I would encourage people to find ways to tune in. It sounds like, you know, for you, it was transcendental meditation. I think for some people, it's entering some some kind of flow activity, right? Whether that be a sport or yoga or dance or music. I mean, there's so many doorways. There's a wonderful Buddhist quote that says there's 10,000 doors to the Dharma, which is the idea of like, it doesn't actually matter what you do, as long as you pay attention to doing it. As long as you really go into it and spend time noticing the nuance and the details, there's beauty truly everywhere. And I hope your listeners can hear that, that there is opportunity no matter what, and there's no right way, but you do have to pick a way, if that makes sense. You do have to walk down a path to move towards trying to wake up and trying to develop some sort of um, appreciation for life because, like I said, it is it is limited.
0: That's awesome. I suggest my listeners get um, some sort of software recording device and record this podcast and just edit this into, like, a morning meditation to listen to because you have some amazing answers. Uh, we are running out of time, so I'm going to ask my last official question, and then I'm, of course, going to give you the floor uh, at the end of the interview, as I always do. So my, my last question for you would be, how do you think people can access like the place that stops you when you've unwrapped the foil on the pack and you're holding it in your, I was a smoker too. So that was a great example for me. Uh, like what, what is your best advice for like when you're on step seven of the nine steps required to fulfill your addiction and it's not too late? Like what advice do you have for that specific moment?
1: that's hard because at that point, it sometimes feels so automatic that my my gut reaction would be at the at that point, just have grace. like just try to be mindful of the cigarette. try to like if you're gonna smoke it, at least smoke it with your eyes open, right? Notice how it tastes. Notice what you like about it, notice what you don't like about it. Notice the lung burn. Notice how it you know scorches your lips, how it stains your teeth really be aware of your energy afterwards i know after smoking a cigarette i always had to like sit down and breathe you know to like take the wind out of me I, I think being aware of of the whole the whole package because for a lot of drugs if we're kind of going down that route you know the anticipation and the the build-up and the ritual is and the initial hit is the best but then there's often this like hangover period that that sucks you know it leads to craving and addiction and desire and emptiness and and cravings that eventually lead to another, you know, hit and the cycle keeps going. So I would encourage people, if it feels like it's unstoppable, to just tune into what the long-term effects are and and how it really makes them feel, not just connecting to the desire and the craving.
0: Okay, so I I totally lied because your question sparked a second question that I have to ask because it's very related. So the complete antithesis of this is the only other thing you mentioned that also uh, really rung home with me which is when we find ourselves being angry. So for me, it's in the car. That's where I just like find I have an unstoppable source of anger that is like subconscious and then becomes conscious. What, since since it's very different because anger isn't something you look forward to and buy and most people aren't planning on it. Do you have any advice for that step too? Like when a person is either already angry, like how can they become self-conscious enough to see that they're angry when they're angry?
1: Yeah, so I mean, kind of similar, right? It, I think tuning into the body sensation of anger, noticing what it feels like, you know, a tightness in the chest, a redness in the face, you know, clenching fists, an ability to like want to lash out and just, you know, eject power out. And then, you know, someone like you or someone that has this chronic anger is to actually seek counseling, right? Not because it's a problem, right? I mean, road rage is fine. But if there's, there's this kind of great moniker, which is, if it's hysterical, it's historical, so if you have a reaction that just seems like totally unreasonable for the situation, like for example, road rage, then there's some deep trigger that's getting hit. There's something that that is reminding of you of your, you know, your past, of you know, a trauma, of a toxic relationship, of a, you know, perspective on the world. I mean, I don't, I don't know enough to make some guesses about your case, but having this idea of there might be something there, and to live, a, you know, an examined life would be being curious about what, well, what is that about. What is that about? Like what is, what is happening on on like that root level on that guttural level that's triggering the outburst.
0: That is incredible. I have never once thought to do that. And I'm a pretty thoughtful, like I said, I mean, I meditate, I try hard, but with my road rage, I've always just assumed that I just have to work on it, but I've never thought that it's probably me as a little kid seeing something and reacting to it as an adult and thinking it's in the car. So I will work on that later. I'm not going to waste my audience's time unfolding my thoughts about that. But um, I do always let my guests finish the show. And I just tell you, you have the floor. We've got a pretty big audience at this point. So uh, whatever you want to say to the peaceful and peace-loving people who listen to the show.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I guess if I have a little time, I just want to plug therapy. I think to will help to kind of reduce the stigma. But it doesn't have to be something that you have to be crazy or an addict or have a problem. It can be kind of what I was talking about is a place of self-discovery a place to really take care of yourself and be curious about your inner workings, a place to optimize your experience and really move from surviving to thriving. There's a lot of really great practitioners out there that can help you go to the next level. And I work almost exclusively with men right now. So I think especially for men, what I found is that we don't go to therapy until the shit hits the fan. Usually addiction or divorce are, are the big ones. And I really wish a lot of my guys, and maybe there's someone listening that, it would be that went to therapy 10 years earlier right or, or two years earlier and I was able to work on some of these smaller things before it became a giant fireball um, so that's that's the plug i would make is like get into therapy examine yourself uh go deep try to understand how you became who you are
0: that was awesome mark you're a fantastic guest you're a fantastic human and uh i am um... Not assuming, I'm actually like positive you're a fantastic psychotherapist. So thank you so much for helping us put another nail in the coffin. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us all your positivity and your just naked honesty. Um I hope our listeners really do consider what he said as someone who went through a divorce and finally saw a therapist. I can a thousand percent concur that uh we men definitely face a stigma, and whether it's internalized or external and projected, it doesn't matter. Um there's nothing wrong with getting help. There's everything wrong with not getting help. So with that said, Thank you again, Mark. And uh, there will be notes in the bio to contact him if you want to uh, look into his life. And uh, for everyone listening at home, just thank you as always. Please subscribe and head over to MikeyOp.com and subscribe to the essay that we attached to this. And uh, hopefully we will see you soon. Walking alone Walking alone When I hear this song And I'm walking to you